Hi, and welcome to episode three of Success Strategies for Professional Women. A warm hello to all my listeners, especially the two in Colombia. Are you there or is it a data glitch? Do tell. Today I'm going to talk about imposter syndrome, a thorny subject. One of the very first podcasts I did when I started First Woman and was looking for new angles on so-called female issues. I interviewed five guys who were self-confessed imposters. Two of them I knew well, the other three put themselves forward after I asked for volunteers on LinkedIn. Rather brave, I thought, to open up to a stranger. That said, none of them wanted to be named because for men, admitting to any form of self-doubt or insecurity is difficult enough, let alone having the fact broadcast to your work colleagues. And it's for that reason that imposter syndrome has become more gender nuanced, a female problem, because men still don't want to talk about this stuff, unless you're Stephen Bartlett and not risking your career by fessing up. Stephen recently posted a video on LinkedIn suggesting that we have got imposter syndrome all wrong. He presents imposter syndrome as a positive growth moment rather than a negative feeling. This provoked all sorts of comments from those who have built coaching businesses around helping people overcome so-called imposter syndrome. Their challenge was that Stephen misunderstood imposter syndrome and his version was an oversimplification. Then there were those like me who supported the reframing, but more on that later. Imposter syndrome is said to disproportionately affect high achieving people who find it difficult to accept their accomplishments as their own. So no great surprise, it is a favoured subject for posts on LinkedIn, where it's a guaranteed winner in terms of engagement. I also hear the phrase from my clients when they have concerns about doing something new or different. So perhaps it has indeed become a proxy for low self-esteem, confidence and lack of self-belief. Then there are the others who say imposter syndrome doesn't really exist at all, that it's a function of toxic work cultures. Women don't really have imposter syndrome. It's because they are made to feel less capable by the established systems of the patriarchy, deliberately or otherwise. HBR published a widely read and circulated article in 2021 entitled Stop Telling Women They Have Imposter Syndrome. In it, the authors argue that imposter syndrome puts the blame on individuals without accounting for the historical and cultural context that are foundational and fundamental to how imposter syndrome manifests itself in women. And there's some truth in this. Even if women demonstrate strength, ambition and resilience, our daily battles with microaggressions, especially expectations and assumptions, can make us feel insufficient and lacking. And imposter syndrome as a concept fails to capture this context, putting the onus on women to deal with the effects rather than workplaces to change their systems, directing our view towards fixing women instead of fixing the places where women work. And then there's the language. Imposter has criminal overtones. Syndrome has medical undertones. It's a condition. Suffering. We don't experience imposter syndrome. We suffer from it. It's all rather melodramatic, but consistent with the patriarchal view of overly emotional, hysterical women. 
and conscious as I am of wading into an academic battlefield. Let's go back to what imposter syndrome is, as suggested by the creators of the phrase way back in the 70s. Here's the history lesson. The formal definition of imposter syndrome is the persistent inability to believe that your success is deserved or has been legitimately achieved as a result of your own efforts or skills. Back in the late 70s, psychologists Pauline Rose Clance and Suzanne Imes coined the term in a research paper, noting three critical attributes of the phenomenon. One, thinking that people have an exaggerated view of your abilities. Two, the fear of being exposed as a fraud. And three, the continuous tendency to downplay your achievements. People with imposter syndrome tend to attribute their success to luck or to someone or something else. But in order to research this episode fully, I downloaded a PDF from the Imposter Syndrome Institute. Yes, there is even an institute. Amongst other things, they offer a crash course in understanding imposter syndrome specifically for coaches because there is so much misinformation and misleading advice around the subject. The PDF, which I'll share on the LinkedIn podcast page, identifies four different types of imposter. The perfectionist, whose primary focus is on how work is conducted and the outcome, that it should be 100%. The expert in the room, needing to be the most knowledgeable person because any knowledge gap is a source of concern because you might not live up to expectations and horror of horrors have to say I don't know. Thirdly, there's the soloist, the feeling that you should be able to do everything on your own and needing or asking for help is a sign of weakness. And the superwoman who is able to juggle multiple tasks and excel in all of them, all of the time. We imposters hold ourselves to impossibly high standards. We try to control our environment and we suffer comparisonitis. So anyone with a tad of self-awareness might conclude that such behaviours and traits lead to or are a result of a negative internal narrative which makes you feel like you'll never measure up and that you don't deserve what you have. The Institute, however, contend that this approach is fundamentally wrong and encourages all sorts of misdiagnosis and therefore ways to overcome imposter syndrome. Indeed, a Google search yields more than 5 million results for imposter syndrome and shows solutions ranging from attending conferences, meditating, reading books, and reciting one's accomplishments in front of a mirror. The latter is, according to the Institute, absolutely the wrong thing to do. Pep talks with yourself or administered by others don't work because people with imposter syndrome attribute their success to internal factors, not to their own ability or inability. So telling them to change won't make any difference. It took me a while to get my head around that, but I can see the logic. And so-called imposter syndrome typically, but not exclusively, shows up when we take on something new or are tasked with doing something different that we haven't done before. So a new role or new responsibilities. 
and it can result in feelings of self-doubt, anxiety and guilt. And we develop coping mechanisms as a result of these. We might hold back from sharing ideas, flying under the radar, keeping a low profile, becoming invisible for fear of being found out or not stepping up to take on new opportunities or projects which might push us out of the comfort zone and present a challenge we don't feel up to. Or prevarication, never getting started on projects, preferring to kick them into the long grass and hope they'll go away. Over prep and perfectionism to mitigate and hide any potential shortcomings. And job hopping, when the going gets tough, we move on. And for years, that was my preferred escape route. But is this really imposter syndrome? Surely being nervous when you start a new job, feeling unsure or uncertain when the stakes are high is a natural and normal reaction. I don't know many people who wouldn't have those concerns. Asking for support and help, not being able to deliver 100% on something you've never done before shouldn't make you an imposter or trigger those feelings of doubt unless you work in a culture where doing any of those things is perceived as a weakness and career limiting. And therefore, maybe Stephen Bartlett's analysis and HBR's Don't Fix Women is correct. Well, yes and no. Yes, it takes a mentally tough woman to thrive in a culture which supports and promotes outdated stereotypes, but that isn't going to change anytime soon. This idea that men should apologise more and make allowances for women is laudable and laughable at the same time, if not more than a little patronising. It simply isn't going to happen until there are more women in senior positions to shift the dial. And even then, Jacinda Ardern, anyone? And yes, feeling anxious about doing something new for the first time is understandable, but Stephen's right. It's also a learning and growth opportunity. But where this falls over is because so-called imposter syndrome is not confined to first-time new events or being out of your comfort zone. It is perfectly possible to perform a role that you can do standing on your head and still believe your own ability has nothing to do with your success. As a fully signed up member of the Imposter Society and a dyed-in-the-wool catastrophizer, I have some experience of exactly this. If it exists, I've suffered, there's that word again, from so-called imposter syndrome for as long as I can remember. I've never thought of myself as anything special or my success as being a function of anything to do with me. Fundamentally, I believe anyone could do what I did. And to some extent, I still do. I still routinely question my ability, wonder whether I'm good enough, and project what might go wrong rather than right. But I've never put it down to where I've worked or how male colleagues have made me feel. In fact, having worked for an equal number of male and female bosses, I can say hand on heart that both genders have on occasion triggered my imposter syndrome. I can recall at least two occasions where I've sabotaged my own success for fear of being uncovered as a total fraud and not fit for purpose. Here's one of those instances. Following a meteoric rise to managing partner on a particular agency flagship account in the early noughties, it was a large UK telco, I was asked to lead a pitch for another part of the business. 
winning it would have been significant, not just for commercial reasons, but because it was a prized piece of business, a trophy account, if you like. No pressure then. I became convinced I wasn't up to the task, despite having significantly grown this particular account. I was convinced that the CEO was going to realise his huge mistake and those who considered me overpromoted were going to be proved right. Not only were my shortcomings about to be found out, but it was going to be on a global stage. I felt exposed and was about to be exposed. So I resigned to avoid being involved on the pitch. I didn't have a job to go to and I was jacking in a very well-paid job with a fast-track career trajectory, but that didn't matter. What mattered was that no one discovered I wasn't that good. And if the agency didn't win the pitch, I was out of the firing line. I look back now and think, what the fuck? It was an extreme act of self-sabotage and it set me on a downward career spiral for three years. And it's also worth noting that pitch aside, whilst at that same agency, I grew said flagship account threefold and organised and led a pan-agency client and prospect event, which paid back the investment 10 times and brought in three new clients. I didn't doubt my ability on those occasions, nor the three occasions I started my own business, and all were high stakes. And if I analyse my reaction to the pitch, it was the exposure that I feared. So there is a difference between imposter syndrome and first-time jitters. Unless you are the most confident person in the world or a total narcissist, Whenever you take on something new for the first time ever, the natural reaction will be to have legitimate concerns. And that's not necessarily imposter syndrome. Those are normal feelings of self-doubt. Can I do this? And in that respect, I agree with Stephen Bartlett. So if you ask, you ask yourself that question, whenever you're faced with a new challenge, give yourself a break. It's perfectly understandable. The thing with first times is... You have no concrete evidence that you will succeed at that particular task. It's a leap. So the fear is your brain's way of protecting you from a potentially dangerous situation, one where you will be exposed and vulnerable. So when a growth opportunity arises that triggers that, look at the rational facts and ask the following questions. Is there evidence to suggest I'm not equipped for this task? Have I had previous experience or success in something similar? What are the key requirements for, the, for success and how many boxes can I tick? Is my boss really going to set me up to fail given that this will reflect poorly on him or her? Why else do I think I can't do this? And before you decline, think, is there anyone you can talk to share your fears and get advice from a mentor or a coach. See, the issue with imposters is even if they logically process those questions, chances are the outcome would be a resounding no. So we either decline the opportunity, self-reject before we even begin, especially in the case of applying for jobs, or take on the task and have crippling anxiety and sleepless nights, worrying about the outcome. Perhaps then it's more accurate to describe self-doubt and low self-confidence as symptoms of imposter syndrome 
not imposter syndrome itself. So what's to be done? Well, you can identify where and how often your imposter syndrome is triggered and in what form. Then there are three strategies to consider. The first one is to replace perfectionism with a standard of good enough, i.e. your best. Let's normalise good enough. Prioritise and set firm boundaries so you have sufficient time allocated to the tasks which really matter. Delegate and ask for help where needed. This is way better than falling over. Good leaders bring other people into their orbit for support. They know nobody can do it all on their own. The second thing, and this is my favourite, controlling behaviour. If you, like most high achievers, are more than a slight control freak, there will be many demands on your time and energy, both from work um, and personal obligations, which you feel the need to marshal and control. And this juggling act can create overwhelm and make you feel the exact opposite to being in control. Not only does this create an impossible standard, but doubling down on trying to control things that aren't controllable will only make you feel more out of control. So it's counterproductive. So start focusing on what you can control, your thoughts, your behaviours and your responses to external triggers. So, for example, other people and what they think and circumstances are mostly out of your control. What you can control is how you respond to them. The third thing, comparing yourself with others. We live in a culture that loves to compare. Perfect lives and careers are projected everywhere and can make you feel like you don't and will never measure up. I was a, wish I was a bit more like this or a bit less like that, or I want to be more like him or her. I've sat in so many meetings and events, listening to speakers thinking, I could never do that, speak like that, hold a room like that. Well, you don't know until you try. It's easy to feel like others have it all put together more than you. But that's not always the case. Everyone has their own stuff. So how do you combat this? Well, first remind yourself that what you see on the outside is unlikely to be real or at least exaggerated. You're only seeing the end result, the bit that they want you to see. Not how hard they worked, not their own self-doubt or their demon imposter syndrome. Aim to have a clear vision for what you want and why. Connect it to your core values and set your goals based on those values and your overarching vision, otherwise known as your personal brand ambition. That way, you define your own measures of success based on what matters to you. And then don't forget to check in often to ensure that you're aligned with your vision and your goals. This will keep you focused on what's most important to you instead of obsessing with what others are doing. So I've spent the last 15 minutes or so focusing on the downsides of imposter syndrome, but I can't complete this podcast without suggesting that there is an upside of which I and many others, including most of the men I interviewed, are living proof. 
Managed and channeled correctly, imposter syndrome can be a real positive, as long as it doesn't flip into overwhelm and anxiety. The Imposter Syndrome Institute counsels strongly against ever referring to imposter syndrome as a superpower for that reason, but I'm not so sure. Many, many successful individuals claim to have imposter syndrome in some form or other. I think the stat is something like 75%. And as we know, it's not only the domain of women. But what makes these people different is the need to succeed. They use that fear of exposure positively, as opposed to allowing it to take over. They don't particularly relish new opportunities any more than the next person. The difference is they do it anyway, because the need to succeed is greater than the fear of being found out. And success is an outcome of personal development. You don't achieve success by standing still. And this is what Stephen Bartlett is really getting at. I don't believe imposter syndrome ever goes away. However, I, like the others, have learned to acknowledge the difference between a reasonable nervous reaction and an imposter syndrome irrational headfuck. So these are the steps to consider when you're triggered. If you're worried that what you're doing isn't good enough. In this podcast is a good example. Mel, talking shit for 20 minutes. And here's my logic. Okay, I haven't done this before, so I'm learning and I'm improving and each episode will therefore get better, as will I, and that's the point. If you always strive to be the expert, remember that expertise comes with time and investment. No one is born an expert. They are a learner driver first, even Lewis Hamilton. But you're here because you have the potential to be an expert. And Stephen illustrates this really well with his Dragon's Den example. For sure, he hasn't the den experience of the others, but he's already proved his entrepreneurial creds and he brings a fresh perspective to the show. That's his contribution. Thirdly, if you don't want to ask for help because you think it's a weakness or or a sign of lack of expertise, then remember this. High achievers get there by harnessing support, which might be in the form of delegation and acknowledging that they are not the expert in all facets. And what's more, they don't need to be. And finally, if you can't have a conversation or present without over preparing, accept eight out of 10 as being good enough. A male senior director I worked with once said to me, if I can go home knowing I've done the best I can, then that's good enough. I can do no more. Of course, the challenge here is one person's best is another's half a job. Only you know your best, but that should always be good enough for you. My personal preferred alternative to pep talks, journaling and daily affirmations, though they have their place, is to empower individuals, women especially, by encouraging them to intentionally acknowledge their accomplishments and abilities for them to realise what they have achieved themselves, understand the role they played and realise it's not down to luck or someone or something else. It's down to them and no one else. In the first of my coaching modules, I asked my clients to write down their significant achievements, personal and professional, and then we deliberately unpack those to uncover their personal contribution to that success. 
it's often revelatory because most of the time, and for many different reasons, modesty being one, women dumb down their achievements. But when you reflect on what you did, the role you played, it's an eye-opener. So I want women to be able to own and articulate their strengths and know their value. That way, there can be no doubt, internal or external, as to their competence. And I look forward to the day that we can all embrace our strengths and acknowledge our weaknesses without feeling insufficient or fraudulent. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave some comments or a review or feedback. If you disagree, then share your perspective. And if you think you suffer from imposter syndrome, book a call and, uh, and let's have a chat. So until next time, I'm Mel Stanley. You've been listening to Success Strategies for Professional Women. Thank you.